0: I don't know how many of you have watched any of the Olympics at all. Oh, it's pretty low percentage. Wow. Katie gets really into the Olympics because gymnastics is her thing. So she like follows it. She's been following it for a month or two leading up to um, the gymnastics and the Olympics. <coughs> and. She's uh, a really big fan of Simone Biles. I mean, her favorite is Nasia Lukin, who now announces for the Olympics and like does the commentary. But um, <coughs> when Simone Biles was coming to the Olympics this year, people uh, thought of her as she's the greatest of all time in, in terms of gymnasts. And some people even say she's the greatest athlete of all time, not just gymnasts. And so people expected um, that she was going to you know break all these... Uh, records in terms of how many people hold medals. She was going to win gold in all these events, going to help Team USA go get gold. And she was even by some seen as the face of the uh, 2020, to- well, it was the 2020, you know, it got postponed a year, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics because people like Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps are no longer competing. So it's like, okay, like Simone Biles is like the face of it. But only a little way into the gymnastic competition, um, Biles was consulting with her Doctor, the team physician that was there, um, and then she kind of goes off and leaves the stadium, and then comes back and she's like in her warm-up gear, and it's like, well, there's more things you have to do. But she, everyone's wondering, okay, what's happening? with there's like some kind sort of she getting injury, some sort of physical issue, um, but she, it was thought, okay, we don't know if she's going to compete. Um, she's not finishing this event. Which events will she finish? Because she had qualified for a lot of them. Um, but what the reason they gave was she didn't quite feel in the right place. Mentally, like something was um, getting to her, where she was making mistakes that she shouldn't have been, which was putting her life in danger because you're, you know, flipping around, flying around in the air. And so, as I thought about this, I was thinking, you know, which, which one was harder? Which do you think was harder? Was it harder to spend years of your life and with determination? and perseverance and focus and, you know, in the gym. You know, she's been preparing for these Olympics for, well, usually four years, but this was five years of preparing for these Olympics. So was that harder, to, with all that diligence and determination and practice, to get the spot in the Olympics? Or was the decision not to compete in the spot she was given harder? What, what did it take for her to say no to competing? And <clears throat> she had to accept she had to accept her inability, her limits, her, her weakness in that moment, she had to, going into these games, she had a lot to live up to. People had a lot of expectation, expectations for her. Like, you're going to win all these things, you're going to help you know, break these records and get all these medals and help Team USA you know, win gold and all this stuff. But she had to decide, I'm not going to live up to those expectations. Like, in this moment, everyone wants me to do this, but I'm not going to do that. And she gave up competing at probably her last Olympic Games. Gymnasts don't often go, at least in the US, past like the age of like 24 or 20 or something like that. Um, other countries are a bit older, um, but and she gave up setting records. She had to accept possibly losing her image. I mean, is she the greatest of all time? If she's not able to compete, it's like, oh, you couldn't push through, you know, some, you know, uh, negative mindsets or some of uh, like your anxiety. Like, haven't you trained for this? You're the greatest of all time. Why couldn't you, couldn't you do this? And so we may ask, which was harder? Did it take more courage, strength, determination to get to those games? Or did it take more courage, strength, and determination to say, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to let other people step in for me, and I'm not going to compete. So which one? She's, she's the goat, the greatest of all time. Which one makes her great? Which one makes her the greatest of all time? And today as we finish up the section of the Gospel according to Luke, and we're going to see people wrestling with Greatness and status, and where does that come from? And you can think of Luke as being divided into four main sections, and if you um, think of it as kind of like four acts in a play. Uh, The first act was surrounding Jesus' birth and his early childhood years, and then the next act was him coming into ministry, being baptized by John the Baptist, and he's ministering around Galilee, which he... He grew up in Nazareth, and so Galilee is kind of like his home region. And I mean, he kind of spurted off into other areas, too, like he went across the Sea of Galilee and ministered in a Gentile region. Um, but then the, four, the third act after that, um, well, in the second, in the second uh, act of the play, people are asking, who is Jesus? You're getting a sense of his authority, like, who is this guy? And then finally he brings his disciples to that confession of, who do you say I am? And then there's this passage we're having today after that. And then starting in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So no longer in Galilee. And then starting in 951 is the third act of this play. And it's, you're, he's going to the Jerusalem for, well, this is chapter about 9, kind of the end of it. And it doesn't get there until chapter 19. So you get like 9, 10 chapters of this trip to Jerusalem, which uh, I guess I'd have to look up how long it took. I think it was about a week or so. So you get, you know, how many years of his life zip, zip through. And then all of a sudden it takes that long to get to Jerusalem. And then the final act is when he uh, is in Jerusalem for that last week of his life for his death and resurrection. And then we see his death and resurrection in that last fourth act. And this week the curtain is going to close on the second act. His ministry in Galilee, people figuring out who is this guy? And as before it closes, I mean, it's not super uh, encouraging. You know imagine you're asking this play, you're watching this play, and just before this act gets done, it's like, wow, we came to this moment where the disciples are like, yeah, you're God, we're seeing you for who you are. You're the Christ of God. And then it's like, that would be a great spot to you know, put the curtain and then let's open it back up and like, what are they doing now? But it actually ends with the disciples failing in several areas. So we see the disciples still figuring out uh, what, what does it look like to follow a Messiah like this, a king like this, the, how Jesus is um, says he's gonna, his life is going to go. Because he says, the path I'm on is one of suffering, de- rejection, and death. And he, then he says to them, basically, if you want to follow me, well, he's walking down that path, that's the path you've got to follow too. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me be you like him. And we, shortly after Jesus tells them this, um, three of his disciples see a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Uh, they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see, whoa, this is this kind of like God kind of... A, um, pulls back the the curtain a bit and lets them see, whoa, this is a a picture of who Jesus really is, like his glory before um, anything was created and his glory that will be after. And what the disciples fail at in these stories is understanding what it means to be disciples of this kind of Messiah, a Messiah who's going to suffer, be rejected, who's going to die on their behalf. They just don't get it. They, They keep focusing on themselves and they... Um, they're acting in a way that's self-centered. And the symptoms of this self-centeredness can be summarized with these two statements. These are kind of like the, the theme for the message this morning. These two beliefs are, it's all up to me and it's all about me. That's the symptoms of a self-centered life where you see that what you're thinking or what you're saying or the actions you do are saying, this is all about me. Um, or this is—it's all up to me. Like I—if anyone's going to get this done, it's going to be me. And it's like you know, this is people aren't thanking me enough. You know, it's all about me. People need to recognize me. And so, so that's how we put ourselves at the center of our world, of our families, of our workplaces, of the church, is That we say it's all up to me, and it's all about me. And in these stories, the disciples fail in various ways, and we'll see these two beliefs uh, at the center of those failures. And so let's look at the first failure in verses 37 to 43. Like I said, Jesus went down on a mountain to pray. He brought Peter, James, and John with him. And then while they are there, they saw Jesus' glory revealed. This cloud surrounded them, and they heard God's voice speak out of it, saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And they had an experience, like they've read about their whole lives, like Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, Going up on Mount Sinai, and they have this experience of God's presence coming with a cloud or with lightning or you know thunder and stuff, and they they get to experience this that God's presence was made visible to them. They saw Jesus' glory, God's presence. Like we just experienced something that we've read about our whole lives as little kids, you know, thinking about well, what was it like to be Moses, Or what was it like to be Elijah, and then they walk down the mountain. And what they find at the bottom of that mountain is people waiting to see Jesus. There's just this crowd of people, and while they're as they come approach this crowd, all of a sudden this voice kind of rises up above everyone else. There's a man crying out and he says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is an only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. This man is desperate and he explains his son's heartbreaking condition. We get all these details about it. It's not just like, You know, my son has a demon, but it's like all these details of what he's doing. And he had already begged Jesus' other nine disciples who weren't on the mountain that they would be able to cast it out, but they weren't able to. And back in verse 1 of this chapter, Bob covered this for us. Um, Jesus gives his 12 core disciples power and authority over all demons, not some demons, not just the easy demons, but all demons. So, And they had healed other other people of their demonic possession. It says that in chapter 9, verse 6. And so, why weren't they able to help this man's son? What's the issue here? They have authority and power over all demons. What's the issue? Why did the disciples fail in this situation when Jesus has given them all that they need? And Jesus' response gives us a clue. He says to them, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus quotes familiar words to them. Brian read them earlier from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 31, God told the people of Israel, or told Moses that the people of Israel are going to turn away from, you know, things may look good now, but these people are going to turn away from me to worship other gods. And then he commands Moses, I want you to write a song about this generation, of how they're going to turn from me to worship other gods. So Jesus is quoting from this song. And uh, Moses wrote, Brian read some of these words, the rock, his, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are, and here's our words, a crooked and twisted generation. And then later in the song, Moses writes what God says. God says, I will hide my face from them, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So this isn't like a you know, very exciting song. This isn't like, you know, the Bears the uh, we'll throw on the Packers too. The Packers like victory anthem of like, no, nah, no, nah, you know, like some oh yeah, the game Actually, let's actually that's roll out the barrel. I think I just started singing. But anyway, that gets sung at Packer Games too. Um, mm-hmm. but despite God's faithfulness, these people turn from them. God was perfect in how he dealt with them. He was perfect in the relationship. He was just. There was no iniquity. He wasn't wrong or unfair. Um, he didn't deal with them corruptly. In other words, the problem in this relationship isn't God. Um, it's them. They entered the land God had promised them. And then they forgot him and started worshipping other gods, which is called idolatry, and which God describes here as adultery. Why, is he, why does he call it adultery? Because at Sinai, God and his people made vows to each other. God says, here's what I've already done for you. Here's what you will, I vow that you will be. And then he says, here's my Ten Commandments. These are the Ten Commandments. This is what I want you to do. Be, have no other gods before me. That's the first one. You're not supposed to go and cheat on God. God is like a faithful spouse who wants a faithful partner. But his partner is unfaithful. And despite all they had seen God do, this generation of Israelites was unfaithful to God. And Jesus is using the words that describe this generation to now describe the crowd before him and even his disciples. He is describing them as a generation of people who have seen God do mighty things and yet are faithless. (coughs) They refuse to trust him and worship him alone. And Jesus doesn't only describe them in this way, but it it appears he does it with emotion. I mean, he says, how long am I to be with you? How am I to bear with you? I I hope I don't ever bring Jesus to the point that he says those words to me. Jesus expresses exasperation, frustration, irritation, There's an anger there, and in this interaction, we're shown what gets Jesus angry, and that's important for us to know. Jesus isn't just like, you know, the I don't know, some guy sitting around just like saying, you know, comfortable, happy things all the time. Um, Of course, he does say things that comfort us and make us happy, but Jesus has other emotions too. He has the anger of emotion, or the emotion of anger. In the Old Testament, when God gets angry. It's almost always because of idolatry. Turning from worshiping, loving, and trusting Him to give devotion to a false God. God wants an exclusive relationship. This isn't an open marriage. God will have no rival loves. Thus, when His people commit spiritual adultery against Him, He is angry, and rightfully so. When Moses wrote his song, God warned that their adultery, their idolatry, would provoke him to anger. And should we expect it to be any other way? God is fully committed to these people, fully committed to their well-being, to rescue them, to guide them. And should we expect it in any other way that when God's done all this, they say, yeah, you know what, I don't know, things aren't going how we want, or they just get lured away, or they stop being devoted to him, and it's like, we're going to worship other God's he's demonstrated his commitment to them over and over again, yet they go and give their love to another. But we need to note that God never has unjust anger. God's anger is always justified. God's never kind of out of control with his anger. And any emotion that God expresses is a perfectly fitted emotional response to the situation. And people disagree on this, but I think the Bible teaches a doctrine, this will be your $10 word for the morning, um, called divine impassibility. Divine impassibility. And this doctrine states that God cannot be manipulated, overwhelmed, or surprised into an emotional interaction that he does not desire to have or allow to happen. So divine impassibility means God cannot be manipulated, overwhelmed, or surprised into an emotional interaction that he does not desire to have or allow to happen. Meaning God is not vulnerable to outside influence when it comes to his emotions. God's feelings are not results of actions imposed on him by others. But this doesn't mean that God doesn't have emotions. It doesn't mean God is unconcerned with us or impersonal or disinterested or detached or insensitive or indifferent. It doesn't mean he's unable or unwilling to empathize with human pain and grief. God is both impassible, but he's also impassioned, that he has not getting his emotions from the outside in, but he's impassive, impassioned, meaning from the inside out, his emotions come. He's perfectly vibrant in his affections, and God's emotions are always a choice of his own will. God always responds with the perfectly fitted emotional response out of his own will. And so just some words that we use, and sometimes people use them about God, um, and this is but we use them about ourselves. Like we might say, that made me angry, or you make me angry, or we're making God angry. But the practical implication of this doctrine is that we do not make God angry, that we don't break God's heart. We don't make God cry. Because so, think about it, if we can make God angry, that means there are times when he's out of control of himself. We're in control. We made him angry. He's out of control of himself. And it's like, oh, this anger just came up. There, and there's times where we can pull an emotion out of him. There's times where he's surprised or caught off guard because an emotion just comes from him. Like, oh, I didn't expect this. And now all of a sudden I'm feeling something, and then he uh, just reacts to it. God is not emotionally unstable. And it may sound like, oh, this is, I've always thought of it as like, you know, God is responding to what's happening in my life and that's kind of like bringing about his emotions. Um, and we may think, like, I don't really know if I like this kind of God that isn't that way, that we can't make anger or make sad or make cry or break his heart. Um, it's good news because if God is not surprised into an emotional reaction, it means we can have kind of security in our relationship with him. We aren't going to get in the situation where God says, Oh, I didn't think you'd be this bad. I didn't think you'd be this messed up. And I'm just kind of like too angry to even deal with you anymore. And we're never going to get in that situation. There won't be a day when God finally says, "I've had it. I've had enough." He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't get fed up with us. We might make a we as humans might make a decision we regret or say something we regret later on because of how we feel. But God never does that. You know, I mean, how many of you could say like you've said something hurtful to someone? and then they're like sad, or they bring it up to you, and it's like, you know, I'm. it's just a really bad day, bad day at the office, or bad day with whatever, and so I, I'm just taking my stress out on you. God doesn't take his stress out on us. He doesn't have a really bad day, and then it's like, all of a sudden, you know, well, I guess I was going to say to heck with all these people I've redeemed, but it really would be to hell with all these people I've redeemed, because I'm just fed up with it, I'm angry, I'm done with this. Like, he doesn't... Have him reactions like that he doesn 't fly off the handle, and so what angers Jesus? what frustrates him? what irritates him? Well, Jesus gets mad when people cheat on his dad I mean this God the father he's like, doesn 't like like God has done so much, why are you going with these other uh, other gods when people are faithless and refuse to trust in God? Jesus becomes angry he, jesus isn 't an emotionless stoic bump on a log, but he can be angry, especially when people have seen God's mighty acts that they're doing, God's doing through Jesus and it's for them and they still don't trust him. And it, should, it makes sense. Would we expect anything less? Should we not expect Jesus to become angry when he sees people cheating on his father, like committing spiritual adultery? We wouldn't want him to be indifferent to that. We wouldn't want a God who's indifferent to us just saying, you know what, I'm just going to kind of you know, mess around, you know, fool around with other gods, um, and I still want you to just kind of treat me the same. Like that's, We don't want a God like that. And so why does this matter? This is kind of like the long aside, but I felt like it was important. So as I was re- working on this passage, I'm like, huh, that's kind of tough. <laughs> that's tough to deal with and work through. That's not really the picture of Jesus we want. Maybe we want him to be angry at people who have hurt us, We surely don't want to be angry at us, especially at the disciples, if we call ourselves disciples. But it tells us that emotions themselves are not sinful. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. And Jesus was sinless. And so his anger here is an expression of sinless human anger. And it tells us that we too can be angry and not sin. And I've realized, I'll just say it publicly now, like anger is probably the number one emotion I struggle with. Maybe for others it's fear. Maybe for, there's other things. And I've had to come to grips with that. I feel like anger... You know, somebody like struggles with fear or sadness. Um, people move towards them. It's like, oh, like you're afraid. You want to comfort them, make them feel safe. When someone struggles with anger, it's like, a, oh, you, know, you need to calm down or get some therapy. Or like, you know, just go cool off. It's like people don't move towards people with anger. And I've had to come to grips with, you know what, anger... God expresses anger over the right things. And so if I'm expressing anger over the right things, then I'm reflecting God, what God is like. And I need to be careful I'm not expressing anger over the wrong things. So it's something um, Jesus shows us what we should be angry about. and It's a way to express what God is like. And Jesus puts godly human passion about the right things on display. He's angry when people refuse to trust his Father, who is perfectly trustworthy and has demonstrated that trustworthiness. And second, this story teaches us about grace. Jesus gets mad with his disciples but he doesn't abandon them. He doesn't say, okay let's get a new batch in here. Like These guys, they, didn't, they just don't get it. These disciples fail over and over and over again but Jesus doesn't give up on them. He doesn't break relationship with them. He may express anger. He may rebuke them but he doesn't abandon them or give up on them. And Jesus' assessment of his disciples is honest and serious. He calls them faithless and twisted. And I mean the whole history of the Bible, we see that the people who are the leaders and the patriarch of our faith, I mean Abraham Jacob and David, these are people who all have moments of being faithless and twisted. And so we ask ourselves, aren't we in the same condition? How often do we fail to trust in God when He has proven Himself trustworthy over and over and over again? And the harshness of Jesus' assessment of our condition too only brings us to be even more impressed with his love and with his grace. Jesus' words show how much we need God's forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love. And Jesus, the reality is he died for faithless and twisted people. If we weren't faithless and twisted, there'd be no point in sending Jesus. All you would need was a a written note that said, Hey, be more faithful and less twisted. And then we can just get our own act together. But Jesus came to die for people who are faithless and twisted. And this story puts the abundant love and grace of God on display. He remained committed to Israel, even though they are faithless and twisted. And Jesus remains committed to us, despite our constant unfaithfulness. And yet he doesn't take our lack of faith lightly. To be committed to us doesn't mean he ignores how we're being faithless and twisted. It means he doesn't break the relationship because of that. That's what grace is. So back to the disciples. We were talking a bit about this on Thursday night. Uh, so was a shout-out to Larry. Remember I said you get a shout-out, so there it is. <laughs> uh, Larry said something that really helped me in understanding this. Um, we were discussing how Jesus responds differently to different people. And to the people who are hurt and humble, Jesus is very gracious, very open, very welcoming, very compassionate and kind and tender. But he often responds to religious leaders with anger and rebuke. And why is that? Why does he respond to them in that way? What's you know they have needs too. Like they're they might even be doing the things they're doing because they're hurting. But he, the reason is because they thought they're better than everyone else. And so Jesus deals with them harshly, sternly, and seriously. And so why does he respond to his disciples in this way here? And the thing Larry had shared was that well it seemed. He responds to the religious leaders in this way because they're better than everyone else. And I was like, oh, that's what's happening in this passage. He treats them like the religious leaders who are acting like they're better than everyone else. And he, they're acting like it's all up to me and it's all about me. So he calls them faithless. That's what, when it's all about, when it's all up to me that we're being faithless not trusting God and twisted, I want to say this is like a one-to-one definition, but you know, we get all twisted when we make it all about us, that we come, just start looking at ourselves, um, Martin Luther talked about it as like, we're curved in on ourselves, it's like we're just looking at ourselves, we need to start looking up, and in this moment, um, they're not doing those things, they show themselves to be faithless and twisted, because they've taken their eyes off God, who's the one who has the power to drive out the demons, and so why couldn't they drive out this demon, it's like, well, you've been given the right, like, but I've talked about, you've given the right and the authority, but they've lost the power. It's like, we're supposed to be able to do this, but what are they looking to? It appears they're turning, looking to themselves. And when Jesus does cast out this demon, verse 43 says that all were astonished at the majesty of God. And that same majesty of God was available to the disciples, but they relied on themselves instead of God. And so we may think just one question for yourselves With whose ability do you assess the situation in front of you, yours or God's? With whose ability do you assess the situation in front of you, yours or God's? When we assess with our ability, we'll always fall short, I can't do this. Or we'll think we can, and then we'll find out we can't. When we assess with God's majesty, anything is possible. God says, with man, this is impossible, with God, all things are possible. Let's bring this brings us to our next section. And the rest of them are, are shorter than that one. In verses, uh, the second part of verse 43 to 45, uh, people are, as people are still marveling at what Jesus did, in this miracle, Jesus predicts his death. Verse 44 says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So, as people are marveling at the majesty of God, because what Jesus just did, he like, his disciples are close to him, he's like, I want, you just, I want this to sink into your ears. He warns his disciples that the marveling will cease, the applause will stop, the crowds will dissipate, and the people who seem pro-Jesus now, in the end, will be nowhere to be found. He warns, this isn't going to last. A bunch of these people are fair-weather fans. That it's not always going to be like this. He says, I want these words to stick into you. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die. But the disciples fail to understand. And their failure to understand this is key to why they fail in the next two stories. So verse 46 says this. Um, and it, In the Greek, there's an and here. So it shows how closely these are connected. So it's like, he, just, he says this, they don't understand it. And then verse 46, And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And this shows that they have a lot to learn when it comes to following this kind of king. Jesus is going to deny himself. He's going to take up his cross. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he says, "All want to come after me need to do that as well." But what are the disciples concerned about? He just tells them, "I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die." And then they're like, somehow they're talking about, "Well, who's who's better of us? Who's the greatest of us?" Like, okay, we're getting this. You know, people are marveling at the majesty of God. Isn't this amazing? Like, we're going to go into Jerusalem, and people are just going to be like so happy we're there. And it's like, yeah, but what's, kind of what's the pecking order when we get there? Like, who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man or, or woman or whatever? It's the 12 talking. Um, what we see is that they're trying to climb a ladder. It's like they have this ladder ahead of them. Okay, Jesus at the top, but who's going to be on the next rung? And they're like pushing each other and kind of you know jostling for a position. And Jesus knows what he's thinking, so he takes this child, brings the child next to him and for us to understand what he's going to say we have to understand what, what, how children were viewed in the, that day in the New Testament and children, um, we have, today we have lots of organizations and laws and stuff to protect kids um, but in that day um, kids were I mean, and still today are vulnerable they can be easily taken advantage of and so that's why we have so much to protect them but in the first century children were often thought of as disposable, if a child was the wrong gender or had something like wrong with them physically or health wise they might just be abandoned like put out in the elements to die and in the first century children had no power no rights no status they were those of humble estate insignificant weak small dependent so as his disciples are arguing about status Jesus brings someone beside him of extremely low status and says in verse 48 whoever receives this child in my name receives me whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all is the one who is great and a child was a perfect example of someone who was least in the first century and they're at the bottom of that ladder that the disciples are worrying about it's like hey Jesus is up here but where do we fit and it's like children they don't even get out on the ladder they're just way at the bottom there and they've just seen Jesus' glory they've heard God uh, proclaiming Jesus' high status this is my son this is my chosen one listen to him But Jesus, even though he's of high status, uh, the highest status of of all does not refuse to associate with the lowly and the least. In fact, that's who he's come for. Jesus says, um, whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And for whom did God send Jesus? The person who sent him, God sent him. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And did God send Jesus to seek and save the powerful? To seek and save the greatest? To seek and save the influential, the famous, the rich? No, as we've seen in Luke 4, Jesus came proclaiming the good news to the poor, to set the captives and oppressed free, to bring sight to the blind. People who have been pushed down, who have been pushed out, Jesus' is good news for them. He associates with tax collectors and lepers and Gentiles and well-known sinners, people of low status. And many of those who are of high status, the religious leaders are questioning him. They're um, arguing with him. They're challenging him. And they eventually will reject him, Jesus says. And in fact... People may like Jesus now, honoring him as one of his high status. Like, look, the majesty of God comes from this guy. People are seeing him as a great prophet. Or maybe he's one of the prophets of old who's risen. But in the end, Jesus is going to be one who has low status in the world's eyes. He's going to be taken as a criminal out to a small hill. He's going to be stripped of his clothes. He's going to carry his own crossbeam out there. He's going to be put up for everyone to see. Look, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. Like, do not mess with Rome. And so, I mean, can you just imagine yourself like being naked, hanging <coughs> there, you can't do anything. Like this is like the lowest you can get. Those with high status in the Jewish world will reject Jesus and have him put to death. And what will the disciple? Will the disciples still want to be his followers? Then, like you guys are all worried about status, climbing this ladder. You think ladder? You think I'm at the top? What are you going to do? I'm telling you what my road is going to be like. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die a shameful death. Jesus says to receive or welcome people of low status, such as children. You need to receive those people. You don't push people out because of their status. And to welcome someone means to honor them. They're like honored guests in your house. And so the people of lowest status in your house, you treat them as an honored guest. You don't just say, oh, who, who are the people we want to get around us? Who are the people we want to be at these parties? Who are the people we want to hear Jesus? It's like, no, the people of lowest status, people who are the least, and you treat them with high status. Jesus says the least among you is great. In other words, treat those of low status like they have high status. And when you do this, you're aligning yourself with God's heart, God's will, God's purpose. You're aligning yourself with God's values. You're seeing people like God sees them. And Jesus, uh, the lowly attracts Jesus. He moves towards the lowly, but the proud repel Jesus. And Jesus is showing us the values of the kingdom that we're not supposed to look at the world in the same way that, uh, look at people the same way the world does. There's worldly greatness and status, and there's kingdom greatness. And status, It's a different value system. So as we think about ourselves as a church or as ourselves in our individual lives, what are the principles and values that we operate by? Are we operating by the world's values or the kingdom's values? And so let think about these questions. Do you ever find yourself distancing yourself from someone because they're weird or unpopular? And do you ever find yourself trying to get close to or recognized by someone that others respect and revere. We may ask ourselves, is this person important? What can they do for me? Which person makes me look better if I associate with them? How will this look if I'm seen with them? Who can get me ahead? And I think all of us do this to some degree without even knowing it. We're drawn toward people who are easy for us to relate to and we're repelled by people who are difficult. We tend to operate in transactional ways. We consider what the payoff is for us what, and we make it all about us. And thank God that Jesus doesn't treat us in that same way. That He didn't look at us and say, "What can these people do for me?" But it was more like, "Here's what I'm going to do for you." He doesn't look at it that way. And just on Friday, I was working at Dunkin' Donuts, and a lady—just um, as a demonstration of what how this works out in my life—this lady started talking to me, um, and I was kind of like, "I'm not really like getting totally what she was saying." And I was like, trying—I wasn't there to talk to people; I was there to work on a sermon. And in all those moments, it's like, well, what is this job really about? It's about people. And if it's like, you know, a sorry person in need, I'm too busy working on my sermon for God, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. And as I'm like listening to her, I'm like, ah, I don't even think she's totally going to get anything I even say. It just didn't seem like things were cooking for her totally. And I'm like, is there even any point talking to her? And then I was like, you know, she's a hurting person that is struggling. And she just, you know, kind of came up to me. We were like the only two people with fucking donuts. And, but in that moment, it was a choice for me of what can this person do for me? I don't even know if she heard a sermon, if she would maybe get it all. Like, she has these problems, and I don't even know if I can help her work through them. But it's like, okay God, I need to trust you, and this person needs to be more important than no matter who she is, you know, the work she's you know, I'm doing needs to be with her right now. So I hope that's clear. I just thought of that as I was Talking now. I didn't have planned to say that, but it was like that, that in that situation I was struggling with this. In the last story, 49 and 50, we see a continued concern with status. Verse 29 tells us that one of Jesus' disciples responds to what he's saying about greatness. He says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him, but he, because he does not follow with us. And the issue of status is John's complaint here uh, about this exorcist he witnessed. This guy uh, doesn't have the right to do what he's doing. Going back to what uh, Bob said about Jesus gave him the authority, which is the right to do it, and the power, which is the ability to do it. And This guy doesn't have the right to do it. Like, we see him casting out demons. Jesus, stop him. We're the only ones with the right to do this thing. The only ones with authority. But the reality is Jesus had given uh, the disciples authority to cast out demons, from the man's son earlier in the story but they lack the power because they're relying on themselves and now this other exorcist there's, he has the ability he has the power to cast out demons but they're saying he doesn't have the right go stop him and they're like you know he's not in the in crowd here and what's interesting is that the exorcist this other person is succeeding where the disciples failed and John wants let's set up some clear boundaries now they're ahead of their ladder of status and it's like wait 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 it's only if you're in this boundary in this group that you can do that stuff guy you don't you know, calm down. Get back to you know doing whatever you're doing before. But Jesus says, "Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you." And Jesus has no interest in playing these games. He's like, he's fighting the same battle as we are, and he's actually succeeding. And so, don't be like jealous of him. Don't have this disunity and this divided attitude about him. It's not about oh, it's not all about you guys. And obviously, this guy is uh, casting out demons in my name, and he's learned it's not all up to me. It's God's power. It's not all about me. And so we see in these disciples, this community of disciples, comparison, competition, rivalry, exclusion, status conscious, self-importance. These are the very characteristics that Jesus taught against. If you go read in Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh, a lot of them, as opposed to the fruit of the spirit, a lot of them line up with that. And Jesus pays no regard to these things. Jesus knows he himself will be put in a place of low status, rejected and punished as a criminal, and then hung naked and shamed on a cross for all to see And what are these disciples going to do with that? Listen, guys, this is where we're headed. This is where I'm headed. He warns them, the marveling is going to cease. The applause will stop. The crowds will be gone. The people who seem to be pro-Jesus now will no longer be. The disciples see Jesus' high status now and they want to associate with him, but what are they going to do when he's in a place of low status? So for ourselves, when we make it all about us and all up to us, we fail as disciples of Jesus. And that's the simple message here. It's like they've got it right, you are the Christ of God, but they still have a lot to learn. It's an inside look at these inner circle of uh, disciples and we see these failures and see there's a reaction of just anger in Jesus' part. But when we notice what the failure is, it's not like, oh God, like I didn't have a perfect day. Like you know, I sinned a couple times today or I was like impatient. But their issue is um one of the heart. It's like a whole, it's a life orientation. It's all about me. It's all up to me. And they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They're putting themselves in the place of God. And they're refusing to admit, you know, when we live this way, we're refusing to admit our weakness, our inability, our ignorance, our neediness. And we may think like, well, if I admit those things, then people won't like me or God won't like me. And he's just, I'm so fed up with your weakness and your neediness and your inability. You can't do anything. It's like, well, no, actually those are the kind of people that Jesus is most tender towards the most welcoming towards us when we're saying it's all up to me and it's all about me that Jesus is like no you're not in the right place with this you need to um, look at how you're living when we're asking what's in it for me or how, how does this benefit me that's an approach that Jesus says don't do that so you know we ask ourselves is my approach is how I approach my day my week and my life asking what's in it for me and uh, is it how I'm approaching my relationships? And this passage alerts us, as I said in the beginning of the service, to a very real danger that, like the disciples, we can be doing Jesus' stuff using Jesus' name and hanging around Jesus' people while at the same time making it all about us and all up to us. I mean, how much closer can you get? I mean, Jesus says it's more beneficial that he leaves because we have the Holy Spirit now, but these guys are just, they're there. They're like going to see Jesus crucified and resurrected and it's, It's like they're so close to it, and yet they still have their hearts in the wrong spot. We can be religiously close to Jesus, but relationally far. We can be involved in a bunch of Jesus stuff while our heart is far from him. We can be doing Jesus stuff and talking Jesus talk, but angering him as we do it, because we put ourselves at the center instead of God. And so Jesus invites us to move from self-centered to God-centered. Surrender yourselves. And we need to let go of worldly status. And we follow a crucified Messiah who is rejected by the world. We follow a king who moves toward the least and the lowly. And he rebukes the proud. And he came into the world to save the weak, the lowly, the vulnerable. And the extent to which we understand that we follow a crucified Messiah who is rejected by the world, that's the extent to which we will find ourselves being humble and not worrying about worldly status. When I think about Simone Biles' decision not to compete in those gymnastic events at the Olympics that she had qualified for, you know, I mean, there could be ways that what she was doing was actually to promote her own message or or something, you know, but so let's just take all the undergirding things aside, but it felt like a picture to me of saying, it's not all about me, it's not all up to me. Because she had to rely on her team, like they're going to finish up this event. She had to let other people step in, and it wasn't like I'm the greatest of all time. I've got to do this. That's the only way that Team USA, you know, is going to have the place in their wo- the world that they should have. You know, whatever she could have said. When you ask ourselves, which is harder, to make it all about us, or all are or all up to us. Sorry, let me let me switch that. To make it all about us or all about God, which is harder? To make it all about me, or make it all about God, or which is harder to make it? All up to us or all up to God? We easily make it all about us and all up to us, but we need to surrender to make it all about Him and all up to Him. And in doing so, we take ourselves off the center and off the throne. We admit our weakness, neediness, and sinfulness, and in doing so, we're finally telling the truth about ourselves instead of trying to be something we're not. Like, this is all about me, it's all up to me, and we just can't live that way. And Jesus invites us to deny yourself, take up your cross and say, it's all up to you and it's all about you. And consider for yourself, do you think you'd be able to relax if you said that? Would that take a, a load off your shoulders? Do you think there'd be less tension in your relationships? What would change about how you live if every morning you said to yourself, it's not up to me, not all about me. I think that our worst moments are when we're making it all about us or making it all up to us. There's this, I'll close with this quote, you may think that, man, I'm just like, the Bible talks about how Jesus is like our, the church's husband, and so it's like, man, I'm just totally unworthy like, Jesus must be so fed up with me. Is he ever going to divorce me kind of thing? Like, just going to get out of this relationship. This is describing how Jesus responds. says, As a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. Likewise, he puts an instinct into the weakest things to rely upon something stronger than themselves for support. The vine stays itself upon the elm And the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. And remember this, the consciousness of the church's weakness makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing. So just this closing thought that kind of sums up, I think, what Jesus is like with us is that Jesus is always holding tighter onto us than we're holding onto him. In this passage, you see these disciples are not holding very tight on to Him. And Jesus is always holding tighter on to us than we are to Him. Let's pray. God, You are faithful when we're not. And thank You for being that way, that we can trust in You, Your stability, Your steadfastness. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.